Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Moni said she was one of the coldest human beings he's ever come across. My belief being, you can't be a bad enough six-year-old to deserve that. What can you have done? I almost like I lost feeling for her, you know? Like, it just, I didn't feel like I cared about her anymore. I wanted to get some insight into people like Catherine. Could there be clinical terms that fit her profile. I contacted Dr. Sean Robertson, a forensic psychologist in Edmond, Oklahoma, who performs examinations of adults and juveniles in most criminal and civil forensic areas. He frequently testifies in complex and high-profile cases, or he examines defendants. Those cases have included Adacia Chambers, who was sentenced to life for murder after pleading no contest to charges stemming from the deadly crash that occurred at the 2015 Oklahoma State University homecoming parade, as well as Alton Alexander Nolan, who was sentenced to death for beheading a woman, and Stephen Paul Wolfe, a Nichols Hills doctor acquitted on the insanity ground after fatally stabbing his nine-year-old son. Robertson visited the Oklahoma newsroom for an interview. For the record, he has not examined Catherine. At my request, though, he reviewed her case and was willing to comment on some of the traits he saw in her as he looked at the evidence. I have not evaluated a lot of parents who've killed their children. It's fairly unusual outside of abuse cases. Uh, Her case is very different than that because she uh, obviously was alleged to have killed the child on purpose to eliminate him uh, from her life, uh, which is very different than most parents who end up killing their children through abuse. Most mothers who kill their children, it's going to be through either abuse or neglect in some way, which is very markedly different than choosing to to murder a child, uh, which really requires kind of a callousness, requires a, uh, a lack of remorse or guilt. NewsOK.com and The Oklahoman. I'm Josh Delaney. You are listening to Looking for Logan Tucker, Part 6, Dreams. Dr. Robertson and I spent a lot of time talking about mental illness, what it is, what it isn't, and how it relates to crime. I want to share what he said before getting into his thoughts on Catherine's case. The main fallacy that we see is defining what mental illness is. And so in these studies that you see cited, they're defining mental illness very broadly. They're defining it as being depressed. 
They're defining it as a substance abuse disorder. Well, substance abuse is a major factor in violence. In fact, it's the second biggest predictor of violence. A lot of people who are in prison have substance abuse problems. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So if we define substance abuse as a mental illness, well, heck, then almost everybody in prison has got a mental illness. And that's the problem. Uh, but if we limit the definition to what we typically in society think of as a severe mental illness, so we're talking schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, major depression with psychosis, uh, things that cause individuals to no longer be in control of their behavior in many instances, then the number becomes very limited. The research suggests that about 10 to 20 percent possibly uh, of those in prison have severe mental illness. I also asked Dr. Robertson how he goes about evaluating people for trial. Well, it's going to depend on the particular uh, legal reason that I'm seeing them. If it's competency to stand trial, it's pretty circumscribed in terms of uh, doing an evaluation to look and see if they have a severe mental illness or some type of cognitive deficit that would impair their ability to appreciate the nature of the charges against them and to rationally consult with their attorney to assist. So you get into doing a general psychological evaluation to look for psychosis, mania, severe depression, things of that nature. Uh, you're also going to assess to make sure they don't have an intellectual disability or a traumatic brain injury that could be impairing. And then you're going to go through a number of areas of competency. So in an insanity evaluation, you're going to try to reconstruct what occurred. You're going to talk with them about their thinking, their feelings, their behavior, prior to, during, and after the index offense. And what you're looking to see is, are there any signs of severe mental illness or cognitive deficits that would have impaired their ability to appreciate the nature, the quality, and the wrongfulness of what they've done? I thought it would be a good idea to ask Dr. Robertson to define terms that lay people often use but don't necessarily understand. Psychosis is a break with reality. So this is more than just an overvalued idea that maybe you don't agree with. It is an actual break in reality, such as a delusion, where you have a fixed false belief. Uh, there's nothing to support it. And even when somebody is presenting reality to you or facts to you, you're unable to recognize that. And what is narcissism? It's basically a, an extreme self-centeredness. Uh, clinically speaking, we get into a lot of different aspects of behaviorally how that's acted out. And, you know, things that are associated with narcissism are a lack of empathy for others, um, a lack of remorse or guilt, a lack of taking responsibility. What is insanity? Insanity is basically a legal term, and we've actually replaced it here in Oklahoma in the statutes. Uh, now we use the term not guilty by reason of mental illness rather than not guilty by reason of insanity. The underlying elements have not changed. It is, does a person have a, a severe mental illness or cognitive deficits that kept them from being able to um, know the nature, the quality, and the wrongfulness of their actions? Finally, what is psychopathy? Most psychopaths are very present-oriented. They're irresponsible, and they're impulsive. And so they live kind of day to day. Um, there are a lot of different traits of psychopathy. So you may have psychopaths who um, ha exhibit more of one trait than another. Um, 
But in general, those are a few of the traits that we look at. Is they, they live kind of a, a lifestyle where they bounce around. They've often had many short-term marital relationships. They've lived a kind of a parasitic lifestyle where they go from one person to another using them for what they can uh, until that bridge is burned, so to speak. Psychopaths aren't delusional, so they're not, they're not mentally ill. It's not a break with reality. Now, they tell themselves lies to justify their own narcissistic needs, and they will live their life that way. Um, but we really need to distinguish that between somebody who may have schizophrenia or may have a disorder where they cannot help themselves. It is not, they're not meeting some narcissistic need uh, by having that delusion. They, it's, it's really kind of comparing a dysfunctional personality to a medical condition where it's out of their control. Dr. Robertson talked about Catherine's case. He read the court documents and the news stories as coverage of Logan's disappearance unfolded, and Catherine was ultimately sentenced to life in prison without parole. Again, he has not evaluated Catherine. I asked her once if she was ever evaluated in prison. She told me after her arrest, the state evaluated her, and she was diagnosed with mild depression. There was no indication in any of the information that I read that there was an allegation she was psychotic or suffering from depression. The traits that are described in the evidence are are very similar to what we see among persons who suffer from psychopathy. That is, uh, a lack of empathy, a self-centered narcissism, um, leading an irresponsible lifestyle. Well, there are a lot of very, very concerning signs. The the first and foremost, uh, well, there are really two that that I identified as being extremely concerning. One was the ex-boyfriend stating that she once uh, reported she wished she could kill her children and get away with it. That is a bright red flag uh, for potential violence, and that type of statement should be taken uh, as an immediate concern and threat that somebody may harm their children. That's basic threat assessment. Uh, The other major concern is uh, that she was alleged to have, and I say alleged, I guess she's been convicted, so um, she was alleged to have told many different stories about what happened to her child during that period of time, and some of these were clearly shown not to be true. Um, and some of the parties that were witnesses would have no reason to necessarily lie. So, for example, she tells a DHS worker that her son's already been arranged for treatment at the Brown Schools in Tulsa, uh, but yet the Brown Schools have never heard of her, don't have her son scheduled to be there. Obviously, looking at the evidence, one would be concerned about the fact that um, she tried to relinquish her rights to her children, um, DHS did not take them immediately and said that uh, any treatment wouldn't be available for several days. She'd reportedly had a boyfriend ask her to move out specifically because of Logan uh, and his behavior. Um, she you know, had reportedly wanted to attend a biker rally and was able, unable to find a babysitter. So you know, one could theoretically look at any one of these as being a triggering event that was just kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But without uh, interviewing her, that would be hard to note. And particularly if she still maintains her innocence, she's probably going to you know, say that nothing occurred. A few of the other concerning traits that you see in the evidence are the report that she uh, relinquished rights to her other son and, and moved away pretty quickly from the town after her son disappeared. In addition, that she was not part or um, 
contributed to any of the searches for her son. It's obviously a, a big concern. Um, and the claim that, you know, five days after her son's disappearance, she's at a biker rally, uh, basically having a good time, partying. Um, there's no indication um, in the evidence that I read that she even reported her son missing. When someone such as Catherine has been convicted of murder, why don't they just admit it? Such an individual might hold on to the fact that there could be some legal technicality one day that gets them out. So if they admit to having done it, that may close that door. Um, They may also be concerned if they're in prison about maintaining their innocence because women who kill their children are generally not well accepted uh, in prison populations. Finally, I asked Dr. Robertson if he has ever seen a case where a person admitted to a murder years after the fact. I actually had a case at the forensic center um, where it was an individual who had committed a murder years earlier, um, felt extremely guilty about it, and called the police and told them what he had done. He probably never would have been caught otherwise. Um, So that can occur. On a bright Wednesday afternoon in August, I drove to Woodward, Oklahoma. Traffic's not a problem there, except for the big rigs that lumber through town on their way to the loading docks and yards throughout the state and Midwest and all corners of the country. I stopped along Main Street and met a woman just outside of an office who was having a cigarette. I noticed she worked in the law office of Radon Jackson. He was district attorney in Woodward in 2002. He was the man who filed the murder charge against Catherine. I walked inside and asked for Mr. Jackson. He's an older man now with white hair. He's quiet and welcoming. It was no formal interview. I didn't have a pen and a pad and didn't have a voice recorder. I just wanted to know how the Logan Tucker case affected his town. Mr. Jackson said he hadn't seen anything like it before and hoped to never see anything like it again. He wanted to know if Catherine was still sticking to her story. She was, I told him. Mr. Jackson shook his head and offered that it took so long to charge her because investigators had to track down every lie she told, no matter how far-fetched it was, no matter how far-flung the lies took them. He complimented Chris Ross, said he even took a class taught by Ross on how to prosecute cases where the victim's body is never found. Mr. Jackson said Monty Clem was a great man, and that something in that landfill finally got to him, that Monty died trying to find Logan Tucker. We said our goodbyes. The White House on Texas Avenue, where Logan was last seen, is down the street from a church and a beauty school. The house is surrounded by a chain-link fence, and the carport on the left side is still there. On the day I was there, in the front yard of the house, a lawnmower was stopped in its tracks. Junk was piled here and there, but there was a clear path out of the driveway. I couldn't get to the front door, so I knocked on the side of the house. No one answered. I went down to Sharon and stopped at the First Baptist Church where Monty and Pam got married, where Monty became a deacon. The brick building is up on a hill above the road with a semicircle driveway. Nobody was home there either. In Fort Supply, I drove by the lake. There were a handful of people camping and fishing. 
a man out there walking his dog. You start to see northwest Oklahoma through the eyes of a four-year-old boy sitting in the back seat of his mother's car. The evidence was that as a four-year-old, he went basically on a burial trip with his mother and brother who was already dead, as he described it, and, and talked about his mother burying him or was going to bury him and carrying him over a fence and having a shovel. And, and he talked about the last time he'd seen him, he had wax and insects on him. You know, all that's got to come back sooner or later. As the miles wore on, the drive around northwest Oklahoma became more haunting. Out in the country of Woodward, I turned left onto a dirt road and saw the curve sign and turned around just as Justin had told investigators. I stopped on the side of the road and got out into the high brush and watched out for snakes, just as Catherine had told Justin. I saw some wildflowers beyond a barbed wire fence and looked off into the field where a tangle of woods rose up in the distance. I started to hear the hum and buzz of the bugs all around me until the little symphony grew so loud I couldn't hear the low rumble of trucks on the nearby highway. Wait, if I was older... Like, maybe I would have had more sense to maybe, like, you know, follow her or know what was going on. So maybe go to go get help at the time. But being that young, there was really nothing I could do. Because I was just a scared four-year-old, not sure what to do or what was happening. On the long drive back from Woodward, I thought about the burial trip, as Chris Ross often described it and how many burial trips there might have been, and how it affected the people who survived. Oh, I would say average of two or three times a year. Somebody will always post on Facebook uh, a picture of Logan when he was six years old and uh, remembering him and remembering what happened to him. And... uh, so it's it's on people's minds, whether it's at the you know forefront, but I, I think people probably give it a thought every now and then. Logan's brother, Justin, is in his early 20s now. He's never written his mother, Catherine. He won't talk to her until she admits what she was convicted of. With me, Justin was generous with his time. He never shied away from a question, no matter how personal. No matter which dark place in the past we visited, there's been a lot of darkness in his life, but he seems to be putting things back together now. He told me about his life after Logan, but I've chosen not to share that here. It's my own little way of repaying him for his time, to not peel back the scars anymore. He owed me nothing and gave me everything I asked, including whether he dreams about his big brother, Logan. Every now and then, honestly, I think most of it's like flashbacking, like memories of him, like in my dream. But sometimes like I'll sit and have a conversation with him. Like he's a full grown person just like me. I don't know. It's just, I always wake up from him in a cold sweat because, you know, honestly I miss him. Some nights when I have a lot on my mind, some relief, like, just seeing him again, even in my dreams. But then I wake up and realize, oh, well, he's still gone. 
Looking for Logan Tucker is brought to you by The Oklahoman. Written by Josh Delaney. Produced by Paige Dillard, Dave Morris, and Phil O'Connor. Engineered by Todd Frazier and Greg Singleton. Thank you.